Well, amen. Y'all aren't tired, are you? No. Y'all full already? No. But you perfectly ever understood everything covered in the last four or five meetings, right? No. <laughs> we work hard to simplify some things tonight, to streamline them so that they're not so technical. But at the same time... Uh, there are a lot of slides and things that I think will help you. Uh, I think we are to open in prayer. So, Daniel, pray for us. Just admit to up front, tonight's chapter, which is 21, uh, of course, Jennifer will read. We're going to spend most of the time in the first seven verses, and then we're going to kind of preach through the rest. There's a reason for that. Those of you that are faithful attenders of the Foundation's classes, when we did this corresponding chapter in 2 Samuel 24, we went through the details of the temple and the site and all of those things in rather vivid detail. But the things that we skipped are the things that we're attacking tonight. So there's some controversies in the very first few verses, and we promised everybody who asked questions during that time that we would answer them when we got to Chronicles. Well, we're going to answer them tonight. So starting uh, with, with a small review, and are you all enjoying these meetings? Yeah. Yes. Amen. We, we hope so. Uh, I, the last time we were together, we covered chapters 18 through 20, and we saw David beginning to subdue the nations. Do you all remember that word? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, when, when we're looking at Kalna, uh, it, it really had to do with a a forced reverence, a bending of the knee. And uh, Judah, what did that remind us of? So that bending of the knee reminded us of Jesus, the Davidic son. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and upon the earth. Amen. And under the earth. Ooh. And every, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we noted that our Davidic king here works to subdue the nations and the gods that lead those nations. Yeah. We have a dualistic judgment coming into play. David subdivided natural armies, but the text hints that more was going on. The Davidic son is explicitly stated as subduing everything on the heavens and on the earth. We went on to note that David treaded out the winepress of God's fury. We're going to have a slide that Justin will tell you about. Hey, well, Justin's pointing to that slide. Y'all remember the scene in that movie that all of you have seen and none of you want to admit to? 300? 
Where Leonidas, he, he will not bow before the king of Persia. He said killing all of the Persians had made his legs sore. Well, Leonidas was a real historical figure. And he will bow before Jesus Christ. So looking at the slide, if you see at the top of the map, we have Zoba. Coming down to the right, in a clockwise fashion, we have Aram. Then we have Ammon. Moab, a little bit lower. At the very south, we have Edom. And all the way to the west, we have Philistia. Now, you see that those nations form a circle. And in the center is where God starts to tread out the winepress of his wrath. This is the winepress that is spoken of in Isaiah 63, Joel 3, and Revelation 19. And now that you're aware of that, you see that the Davidic son, Jesus, was prophesied in those passages to do exactly the same thing. Amen. As we get into chapter 21, you will remember that David's defeat of Moab had hints at a more celestial battle. You guys remember back in the last week we read chapter 20, and we saw that David took the crown of an Ammonite king, and he placed it on his head. Well, there was something hidden there a little bit. If we look at the text closer, there's something hidden there. In different translations, it says the Ammonite idol, Molech, had a gold crown. In the contemporary English version, it says, David went to Rabbah, where he took the crown from the statue of their god, Milcom. In today's English version, it says the Ammonite idol, Molech, had a gold crown which weighed about 75 pounds. The complete Jewish version states it like this. David took the crown off Malcolm's head and found it to weigh 66 pounds. What we saw from there is that David was showing his dominance over the idols and over the gods of those nations. Amen. You have to love the picture that is appearing where David is not just conquering terrestrial armies, but he is showing the dominance of the God of Israel over the gods of the land. Now, that took us into a Deuteronomy 32 worldview, and we began to develop it from there. In the first verse, give ear, O heavens. Moses was first addressing powers in the heavens. Has anybody been studying Deuteronomy 32 since we started all of this? I, I hope it's been revelatory for you. By the eighth verse, he says, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders for the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Of course, that event, you've learned, refers to the Tower of Babel. But out of all of the nations that existed, God picked a nation that did not yet exist, and he called it into being, which is beautiful because he picked a man who couldn't have children, and it would require a supernatural son. And the guy made a mistake, and he had some other son, Ishmael. But Genesis 22 still says, take your only son. This is very similar to Jesus Christ. It's not that God doesn't have other offspring. He does. But he only has one like Jesus. Only one through whom the promise would come. We looked at Genesis 6 being a worldwide rebellion that was aided by a specific group of angelic or supernatural beings. What was their name? Oh, Okay, so, from the heavenly realms, there were Benai Ha Elohim. They cohabitated with women. What they produced 
were called Nephilim. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Benaiha Elohim who participated in this. And if the book of Enoch is to be, be believed, there were 200 of them. They were imprisoned. Peter wrote that. Jude wrote that. They, they were jailed, but their offspring were not jailed. When we moved to Genesis 11 and we started to look deeply at the Tower of Babel, it became clear that mankind was trying to contact the powers in the heavens again and that there were other celestial powers with God examining the situation. In other words, the Benaiha Elohim participated in two worldwide rebellions. Y'all following me so far? Yeah. The 70 nations from Genesis 10, according to Deuteronomy 4, got apportioned or given over to those lesser Elohims, which is why, although everybody starts with a monotheistic religion, getting off of the uh, boat with Noah, we end up with the nations of the world worshiping the wrong gods. Psalm 82 then became very, very important. If you don't translate it away, it clearly says that the Most High had a displeasure with these lesser Elohim, these other gods. Suddenly the titles for God take on a whole new meaning. He's not called the only God in the sense that there are no other spiritual beings. He's called the Most High God. And when the scripture says something like there is only one God, it means there's only one that's worthy of worship. There's only one from whom everything proceeded. Uh, As we come to the close of chapter 20, uh, we noted that Ezra seemed to want you to know something very specific. As we were getting to the end of 20, Ezra starts to roll through some things. So just in a brief recap before we get to the end of chapter 20. We have the Most High God that has children. We have children that are Benai Elohim that are celestial children, tens of thousands of angels and other beings. Then we have an earthly creation that these two both stem from God, but one is from the earth, one is from the heavens. Out of all of the angels that he ever created, all the beings he ever created, he had 70 that were like generals that are the most prominent out of them all that the nations of earthly beings were assigned to. Lower levels of angels that are not the 70 descended and cohabitated with women creating Nephilim. So we're going to address the category that is Nephilim, that are the hybrid offsprings of low-ranking angels and earthly women. Let's pull up this next slide. David's five stones that he picked up when he originally fought Goliath were not just there for insurance. See, some of us carry extended magazines because we're not a great shot. David carried extra rounds because he intended to get them all. He ended up getting just Goliath. And as amazing as that was, there were other giants that had to die. You see those dying in chapter 20 of Chronicles by David's men. The names are listed here. They got each and every one of them. Ezra wanted you to know after addressing the nations... They're gods that even these strange little hybrids that are somewhere between the celestial realm and the earthly realm, David proved dominant over. You're Texans. Do you recognize the phrase, one riot, one ranger? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Some of you were educated in the north and by the grace of God came here is what what is going on. (laughs) We got emphasis. 
Yeah. Well, with David, one stone, one giant. That's, that's how that works. So in our study, we noted three categories. Again, daughters of men that were ordinary humans and died like ordinary humans. They died, they go to Sheol, they will be resurrected in the future. Sons of God that were spiritual beings that descended and created the Nephilim that were confined to prison until that day of judgment. It's actually described as a prison beneath the prison in a kind of holding cell, if you will. Then the Rephaim that are giant warlord hybrids that are the product of improper sexual relations. Where are they? What happens when they die was the question that we posed. Justin will tell us what happened to them. So let's put up the slide that we saw last week. This was taken out of Isaiah 26. And here we see, if you note Hebrews written from right to left, we see that the deceased, the Rephaim, the deceased, not, they shall rise. The Rephaim will not rise. We saw that in Job 26.5, these Rephaim are dead things. In Psalm 88, verse 10, they will not rise. In Proverbs 2.18, it talks about sexual immorality is the path to the abode of the Rephaim, the spirits of the dead. Proverbs 9.18, the depths of Sheol. Isaiah 14.9, defeat of ruler of Babylon will rouse this group, these deceased spirits. In Isaiah 26.14 and 19, we see that they do not rise. And there's a distinction between them and the Israelites who will rise in the resurrection. Praise on, God. Good news. Yeah. Look, we're... We're not talking about these things just to be sensational, although I, I hope they are sensational. It's really that when you start to connect the concepts that we're talking about, when you start to see the chain of logic, the Bible suddenly takes on an even deeper meaning. Joshua's conquest has meaning. We know now why it was so important for Jesus to show total dominance over every demonic power that he encounters. Uh, I want to remind you that David's work foreshadows Jesus. And, and you're going to see that in every way tonight. But let's go to a slide on Enoch for a minute. Y'all remember chapter 15 of Enoch clearly gives us the origin of demonic spirits, that they are the departed or disembodied spirits of the Rephaim. And how about this line in verse 11? And the spirits of the giants afflict, oppress. Destroy, attack, do battle. Here most recently at the local Target where her looting is occurring. <laughs> and work destruction on the earth and cause trouble. Like the pir pirates of the Caribbean, they take no food but nevertheless have hunger and thirst. And how about this one? Cause offenses. Yeah. This gives us insight into not only how these things came into being, but why the chronicler Ezra is recording that David killed the last of their bodies. Okay, that, that became important. David dealt with the bodies of the Rephaim, but the Davidic son, Yeshua, who would come from David, he would deal with the demonic spirits that, that they left behind. Okay, that... With that said, I, I think we probably are to jump into our text tonight. Yeah. Are you kind of, did that prime the pump a little bit? Yeah. Would y'all like to go deeper, like yeah. to go further? Yeah. 
All right, well, Guinevere, yeah. it's your turn, baby. <laughs> Perfect Hebrew diction is about to be displayed. Syntax that is flawless. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a sentence of Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the troops, Go and count the Israelites from Beersheba to Dan. Then report back to me so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied, May the Lord multiply his troops a hundred times over. My Lord the king, are they not all my Lord's subjects? Why does my Lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? The king's word, however, overruled Joab. So Joab left and went throughout Israel and then came back to Jerusalem. Joab reported the number of the fighting men to David. In all Israel, there were 1,100,000 1, men who could handle a sword, including 470,000 in Judah. But Joab did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering because the king's command was repulsive to him. Mm. This command was also evil in the sight of God, so he punished Israel. Then David said to God, I have sinned greatly by doing this. Now I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. The Lord said to Gad, David's seer, Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said, This is what the Lord says. Take your choice. Three years of famine, three months of being swept away before your enemies, with their swords overtaking you, or three days of the sword of the Lord, days of plague in the land, with the angel of the Lord ravaging every part of Israel. Now then, decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into the hands of men. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell dead. Oof. And God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem. But as the angel was doing so, the Lord saw it and was grieved because of the calamity, and said to the angel who was destroying the people, Enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then standing at the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. David looked up and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with a drawn sword in his hand extended over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell face down. David said to God, Was it not I who ordered the fighting men to be counted? I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? O Lord my God, let your hand fall upon me and my family, but do not let this plague remain on your people. Then the angel of the Lord ordered Gad to tell David to go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. So David went up in obedience to the word that Gad had spoken in the name of the Lord. While Aruna was threshing wheat, he turned and saw the angel, his four sons who were with him, hid themselves. Then David approached, and when Aruna looked and saw him, he left the threshing floor and bowed down before David with his face to the ground. David said to him, Let me have the sight of your threshing floor so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Sell it to me at the full price. Come on. Aruna said to David, 
Take it. Let the Lord, the king, do whatever pleases him. Look, I will give the oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing sledges for the wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I will give all of this. But King David replied to Aruna, No, I insist on paying the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours or sacrifice a burnt offering that costs me nothing. So David paid Aruna 600 shekels of gold for the site. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. He called on the Lord, and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven on an altar of burnt offering. Then the Lord spoke to the angel, and he put his sword back into its sheath. And at that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite, he offered sacrifices there. The tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the desert, and the altar of burnt offerings were at that time on the high places of Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, because he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. Sorry. No, I think it's it. That's it. Well, saints, we definitely have some extraordinary concepts to cover tonight. This passage is critical to the uh, axioms, but more than that, the basic principles of LCM. You've seen that demonstrated in our family personally. You know where we're going to largely center with our content. I will say, everybody can breathe a sigh of relief. Out of the options that were given to David, Jehoram's sentencing was not a part of it. We were there very thankful to find that out today. Brother Linton, if you would pick up in verse 1 and pause just for a moment. Last time in Samuel, we made you a promise together that we were going to address verse 1 here. And I promise it will change the way that you read the word in the future and will cause you to understand the plan of God and the enemy's stratagem in a way that you're not going to get somewhere on a podcast from your average Bible study. That uh, There's only a couple of scholars that we know of that actually take the time to look at this. While, while we're thinking on this and we're just kind of prepping you for it, um, in the nearly 30 years that I've been in spirit-filled Christianity, I have never met anybody that properly understands this. So we're, we're going to attack it rather ferociously. Some of you that have been raised in this ministry will be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I knew that. Could you have taught it? That would be the question. Because uh, I haven't met not one pastor anywhere in the world, no matter how fine, that understands this even a little bit. And we're going to show you why tonight. Get worse for me. Satan rose up against So, saints, this is written from the perspective of Ezra. We've gone through that review a hundred times in a row. But if you remember, this is after we have had the destruction of the temple. This is after captivity. This is after Israel has been brought to almost utter destruction and has been revived by God's righteousness and under the teaching of a few righteous men like Ezra and Nehemiah. He's commenting on what caused this event. What incited it? Now, there is not any kind of contradiction here. Would somebody pick up in 2 Samuel 24, 1 for us? And we're going to get into explain how these two passages coincide perfectly. I got it. 2 Samuel 24, starting in verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, and take the census of Israel and Judah. So we have the Lord in one passage, and we have Satan in the other. 
I want you to remember that Chronicles is our last book in the Tanakh, that it is what would be the introduction to the story of Christ and all of the details that unfold in the gospel. This was written so that we might have a better understanding. Anytime you see something that feels like a contradiction in the word, I assure you that there is not an issue with the word, it's with our understanding. And more often than not, it's not an issue between manuscripts or translations. It's actually that there is a more full understanding waiting for us. In this case, Ezra was preparing us for Christ's coming, whether or not he knew it. Clearly in Chronicles compiled by Ezra after the Babylonian exile, Satan is portrayed as the instigator of David's sin in taking the census. We know what 2 Samuel 24 said. Samuel was written much earlier and attributes those actions to the Lord himself. To understand why this is not a contradiction, we're going to look at other passages in the word that explain function, that explain the plan of God, and it will all become clear relatively quickly. While we're turning to some of these, when you see a passage that says the Lord, and then a parallel passage that says Satan, you have to admit that seems like a giant contradiction, doesn't it? Where do we look when we don't understand a particular scripture? Yeah. The broader filter of the word will always answer for you the narrow passage of an understanding. So we're going to show you a couple scriptures that are going to explain what seems like a contradiction. What Bible commentators tend to do is argue for one or the other. Uh After we get through the scripture string, what we're going to do, you will be able to see a bigger picture at play. So we're going to start at one of the very first instances in the Tanakh that Satan is mentioned by name. All right? So we're going to go to Job 1, 6 through 12. And uh, lucky for you, we have this on a slide. So you'll want to read with me as I read this. All right. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Who is that? See, you already know more than what most Bible scholars know. There are many Bible scholars that will say that these are the the born-again righteous Israelites. But you know from teaching that this is not that. These are the B'nai Elohim, the angels. When commentators don't say that they are regular human beings and they do acknowledge that they're spiritual, it never crosses their mind that there might be impurity in them. What you now know is that there is an assembly in the heavenlies and it's not pure. Okay, but it doesn't mean that it's been judged or exposed. Now this next statement is going to jostle a few minds in here, okay? So here we have the angels and they're presenting themselves in front of who? The The Lord. The Lord. The Holy One. The Most High God. Holy, holy, holy. Now look who's there with them. And Satan also came among them. That's interesting, isn't it? How could Satan be there in front of God? Well, we're going to get there. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord. Wow, there's a conversation between Satan and God. Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, 
who fears God and turns away from evil. Man, that's a good thing when the Lord says that about you. Amen. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? That is an interesting question. Job here is portrayed, God is saying that he is a blameless and righteous man. And Satan kind of has a, a counter argument. You know, God, does he fear you for no reason? He's implying that there's some kind of uh, strings attached here. Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have been increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you hmm. to your face. Interesting enough, God is telling, or Satan is telling God to stretch out his hand. Now look what God tells Satan. You, you following? Yeah, yeah. Satan is telling God for God to stretch out God's hands. But look what God says. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. Meaning, do not stretch out your hand against his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Satan is leaving the presence of God. Man, I felt the presence of God. Yeah, doesn't mean everything you think it means. Now let's go to the next slide. This is Job 2. And we're going to kind of see this a little bit further. This is the next chapter. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity. So this is after Satan killed Job's family. This is after Satan took away all of Job's donkeys. And look what God says about this. It's, it's considering this a second time. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him. To ruin him without any reason. God is saying, here's God saying, that Satan was inciting God against Job. Satan was the one inciting God here. Now what we want to show you is that... So let me ask you though. This is not a shock to you that, that it's in the Word. But your predetermined framework has you placing Satan as an enemy of God even when you're reading this passage. Is there anything in this text that would give you a clue, period, to God and Satan not being on the same team? No. No. See, that's an incredible thing. Because both statements in Chronicles and Samuel are true. The Lord did it and Satan did it. Although it was Satan who immediately incited David, ultimately... It was God who permitted Satan to carry out the provocation. Just like in the book of Job. See, if, if there was a serious problem here, then the writers would have addressed it. They didn't because they didn't see a contradiction. Your first clue that something is wrong with your framework is that you do see a contradiction. Does that make sense? Although it was Satan's design to destroy David, and the people of God, it was God's purpose to humble David and the people and teach them a valuable spiritual lesson. Now, we didn't, we didn't just pull this out of the air. People like Norman Geisler, uh, who I think has been teaching the word for something like 65 years, and Thomas Howell, they're both quoted as making exactly the same point. 
Do you know why? They don't depend upon works of fiction to determine theology. They're actually teaching the Bible. For our purposes, it's far more interesting to ask why Ezra wanted you to know specifically that it was Satan behind this event. He could have just written exactly what Samuel wrote, but he didn't. He's writing at a later time period. More has been revealed, and he wants you to understand that Satan was at the heart of this. To understand that, we have to back up a little bit. Is that okay? Y'all like when we do deep dives? There are so many things that you come to learn in Christianity, and you don't know why you know them. And that's very dangerous because they're often not right. (laughs) For instance, you close your eyes and somebody says angel and you immediately think an angel has wings. That's because you saw it in a painting, not because you read it in the Word. You believe with all of your heart that Jesus sweat drops of blood. You'll quote to me all of the sermons that you've heard about why Jesus sweat blood and you know for sure that it's medically possible and you've heard it, except the scripture doesn't say he sweat blood. said that the drops were as if they were blood. I'm not saying he did or didn't. I'm just telling you these presumptions are very dangerous. They can lead you to conclusions you don't want to have. Would you like to learn where some of them come from? Yes. Modern theology has been more dramatically impacted by extra-biblical fiction than by the Bible itself. This fact becomes immediately evident when you examine the biblical role of Satan versus the Christian conception of Satan. Are you ready for it? I'm going to show you a book, tell you a little bit about it, and then hand it off to myself. This book, right here, Paradise Lost, a poem that is written by John Milton. It's ten volumes, and it's expansive. It was published in the year 1666. What was going on in the world in 1660? I'm sorry, 1667. What was going on around that time? What had just happened? Well, the plague had happened, but we had also had a little thing called the Protestant Reformation. And people were interested in the Bible. I have found through my years of pastoring, one of the biggest questions I get is, how do you study the Word? Well, it starts by actually studying the Word. (laughs) Don't go buy 15 books other than the Word to teach you about the Word. Start with the Word. Well, the Protestant Reformation was characterized by the same thing. People encountered things they didn't understand, that they didn't know, and we have this handy little reference work which is a poem. In it, Satan, formerly called Lucifer, according to this poet. Nowhere in the Bible does the Bible equate Satan with Lucifer. You go, oh, well, Isaiah 14. You don't understand Isaiah 14. It is clearly addressed to the king of Babylon. But in this book, he calls Satan Lucifer. How many people take it absolute fact that Satan's name is Lucifer? That didn't come from a Bible. That came from this book. He's the first character introduced in the book. It goes on to say he was once the most beautiful of all of the angels. The Bible doesn't say that, but this book does. It 
further goes on to say that he fomented a rebellion against God and he was cast out of heaven and put in hell. In other words, his dominion was hell. Now, how many Sunday school classes all over the world teach that Satan rules hell? Not found in the Bible. Nowhere. Talk to all of you at some point in your life, but not in the Bible. It comes from a collection of poems. Now, Milton presented Satan's fall from heaven as happening before Genesis 2. That is why most Christians believe that Satan fell before Genesis 2. But the Bible makes no such claim. You will not find it anywhere. I challenge any one of you to show me anything remotely definitive on that subject. You won't be able to do it because you have been quoting poems all of your life. And so was your mama. And so was your daddy. And they were wrong just like their parents before them, for one specific reason. They exalted Milton's work as if it was scripture, and it is poetry. Do you see how serious this becomes? Christians accepted Milton's fiction that Satan's name was Lucifer, even though the Bible doesn't say it. Christians accepted that Satan was an angel, a beautiful one, In fact, Milton has him as a a worship leader in heaven. How many times have you heard that ball of crap? It came from a book of poetry, not from the Bible. Christians accepted that Satan rules from hell and that it is his headquarters, even though the Bible doesn't say it. Tragically, Christians accepted that Satan fell prior to Genesis 2, which we are going to teach you, and it is demonstrable in the Bible that that cannot be true. Start with the book of Job. If he fell before there were human beings here, then how is he strolling into God's presence? The exact opposite is true. Satan is presented in the scripture as a spiritual being, never called an angel. You you do not know his classification, He's presented as a spiritual being that is working with Yahweh in something like a district attorney's position or a prosecutorial role. Now, there couldn't be a time in our history where it should be easier for us to see a dirty (laughs) prosecutor. Somebody who is not really as interested in justice as he is his own reputation. Somebody with political motivations when he goes to trial. So Saints, as we continue to press this subject, there are a few things I want to recap with you. In the two passages that we read out of Job, we had a man that God loved, that he had blessed and put a hedge around him. Think back to the chapters we've covered already in Chronicles, where the establishment of David's house and God's affirmation was placed upon him. Then he defeats enemies all the way around. Then we have a prosecuting attorney of sorts that my father just described, that takes interest in that righteous man. And then everything beyond that proceeds. When we think about the idea of him being an angel, in the two passages we just read, he was mentioned as distinct from the angels. The idea that he's ruling and reigning from hell, 
He is obviously not in hell if he's leaving the earth and ascending to the heavens and speaking with God. Just two passages that we read tonight dispel myths that people have lived with their entire life. There is nothing that you have that is more important than the word. We want to take a look at some concepts that we covered yesterday on Sunday and put them in the first century audience point of view. Let's get that slide up. So we have 1 through 12. You guys remember this? So we have the corruption of the human race. Who played a part in that? Somebody give me an honest answer. You're now getting our point, saints. The corruption of the human race in Genesis 6 was the Benai Ha Elohim. It was angels that descended. But we automatically attributed already to Satan. That's because we are looking at this Bible from the end of the book and assuming that it was immediately clear. We'll continue to walk through this. You know who's not mentioned in it? Satan. Satan. Not anywhere in it. Now, I'm not saying he's not behind it. I'm the one that made the slide. Satanic stratagem. (laughs) But you could never know that from Genesis 6. So saints, let's consider our second one. Corruption of the nation. This was Abimelech, not Satan. We have Abimelech wanting to sleep with Abram's wife and pollute what God had intended to create through Abraham. We attribute it to Satan because we know after the fact. But you know what Abraham knew? Abimelech was the one that wanted to sleep with his wife. It was a satanic stratagem, but that was not immediately evident. Number three, worldwide famine. This is nature. Look, bad things happen. This is Houston. We've seen our fair share of hurricanes. Now, sure, a spiritual force could be causing that because it is trying to oppose what we were doing. You know what else it is? It is the weather. They had a famine. It was natural. And that's what they could see. Now, to keep reemphasizing this point, if the Bible is your sole source of truth, you have to ask yourself, why did 200 people hear us preach on Sunday... And how many ever heard online and nobody said, uh, the Bible doesn't say that with Satan. You said it with Satan. Because we've been taught things that were wrong. We assume that Satan fell before Genesis 2 and that he's behind everything negative you see in the Bible. Now, I want to take some pressure off you. We didn't lie to you Sunday. It is Satan. But you would never know that if you were living in the times that the Tanakh was written. That is not clear yet. And where we're headed with this is our first hint at it actually comes from Chronicles. So we have a couple passages that you'll see where this revelation began to come about. We're going to press through this just a little quicker so that we can get to it. The murdering of the males. We had Pharaoh do that. Now he's definitely a type of Satan, but it was an actual man. Military intimidation. We had all of the armies of Egypt literally physically standing there. Unnatural giant obstacles. This was very real giants that they had to pick up a sword and fight with. It wasn't a dream. It wasn't just praying. It was both. We have reprobate relatives. A Tahala. A Tahila. Somebody help me with that. Athaliah, but she she is from Hela. Janice, can't you learn? I'm sorry. A demonic grandmother that wanted to kill her sons and grandsons in the entire royal line of Judah. Number eight, we had Arab raids on God's house. That one really doesn't need to be explained. Just look at the Middle East. Foreign domination. We had Sinashareb literally walk up to their walls and say, you will eat filth and drink urine. 
xenophobic hatred of God's people. Haman literally wanted to exterminate them and tried until God had him hanged on his own gallows. Anybody got a problem seeing Haman as Satan? Of course not. Does the Bible say that Satan was behind Haman's hatred? No, No, not at all. We have the offenses of religious people. That is number 11, where his own townspeople want to kill him. And you can tell that something is motivating that, that is causing a kind of fomented hatred that is unnatural. But you know what you didn't see in that moment? Satan. What you saw was the people that hated Jesus. We even have a supernatural storm in the ministry of Jesus that fishermen, fishermen are scared to death of. This is what they do for a living, and it freaked them out. But you know what else that is? It's bad weather. It's a natural phenomenon that people can look at just like a hurricane. Now, Jesus rebukes it, right? But he does not say, Satan, I rebuke you. I rebuke you, storm of Satan. No. No, I'm not suggesting that these are not stratagem of Satan. I I promise I've thought far enough ahead that we were not preaching to you a lie on Sunday. You have no problem accepting it, but you have no idea how you know it's true. And we want to unveil that to you tonight. Saints, in Genesis 3, it's the serpent that takes the fall. We automatically read in when you hear that story, ah, Satan deceived Eve. But what it was was a nahash, a serpent. Quite literally, over and over again, we see a type of proxy that is representing something that you never actually get to see. Genesis 6, we already mentioned, is the benai ha Elohim. In the two passages that we just read, who takes the fall for the sin? The serpent does in Genesis 3. Who takes the fall in Genesis 6? So in Genesis 3, we are put in a different kind of existence because of the sin we committed. And the serpent is said that we are going to crush under our feet and it's going to eat dust its entire life. Saints, do you really think that just a snake is what caused all of that? Of course not. But what it says is a snake from the text, from the Bible. That's what Adam and Eve interacted with. The same is true for Genesis 6. When we look at Genesis 11, we've been teaching about the backdrop. We've been learning more and more about the 70 Elohim, those four-star generals, if you will, that participated in this. But you know who was literally being punished, who was being scattered all over the earth? The people were held responsible. We have a proxy of sorts here. This is true throughout the biblical narrative until we get to a very specific prophet that Ezra had. Let's take a look at Zechariah together. Zechariah 3, 1 through 2. All right, Zechariah 3, 1 through 2. You guys there? Yes. Hey, do we have your interest yet? Yes. yes. There. All right, Zechariah 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. There they are together again. The Lord said to Satan, (laughs) you know what this says in Hebrew? Be quiet, (laughs) Ohad. To accuse, to oppose is Satan. The Satan is there to Satan him. <laughs> Say, bro, don't Satan me. <laughs> so in Hebrew, the word oppose is Satan, Satan. So we, we thought it was funny when we were reading earlier the incident with Balaam and the donkey. Balaam is riding on the donkey, 
and he is trying to beat his donkey to get through the pass. And the donkey says, Any King hey, James in the room? haven't you been riding upon me this whole time, but now God has sent me to Satan you. <laughs> I don't know about you, but that's fun to me. It's, <laughs> there are very few of these in English that we could remember. I'm not saying they're not everywhere. But a Xerox, a Xerox was a machine, a, a, a company that produced a machine. Unfortunately, their competitors came out with others, and we still said, go make a Xerox. Kleenex is another one. Satan has, has a role like that. Looking backwards, you can see it's the kind of thing that he does, but his name is actually derived from a verb. It's a function. A function. Yeah, accuse or oppress. So I'm going to reread Zechariah 3, verse 1. You guys with me? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. Satan. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? What's interesting about this after Judah just read that list? That list consists of all the satanic stratagems we've been learning about, but not one of them Satan gets rebuked for. Here's the first time in this messianic passage we find the very first rebuke of Satan in the biblical text. Now, a little background on the book of Zechariah. Zechariah was written roughly between 557 and 525 BC. That means for 3,500 years. For 3,500 years. Satan is getting other people to take credit for his work. <laughs> I, he, he is like a politician. Somebody else, is, he's actually like the Clintons in a lot of ways. Somebody else is going to jail, but it's not going to be him. He has such a nasty web of people that he is using to do his work that he makes sure that he never gets caught for using them. They are the ones getting set up. Ezra is recording. Now get this. Zechariah written between 557 and 525 B.C. Ezra is recording chronicles 100 years after that. So when Ezra is writing his chronicles, he knows about what happened to Satan written in the book of Zechariah. He sees the very first time that Satan was rebuked. Now, we know, of course, that Yahweh knew Satan was a dirty prosecutor. We knew that Satan knows this, or I'm sorry, Yahweh knows this from the beginning. But it was not apparent to anyone reading the Bible until Zechariah wrote about it. Because they didn't have Milton's fiction. <laughs> they didn't have some extra biblical work to lie to them, for them. I, I want you to appreciate the extent to which this is important. If in all 39 books, we do not have Satan being rebuked, being discredited, being corrected by God at all, until we get to about the year 557, this means that you have to look retroactively backwards to see his work. The text simply doesn't explicitly say it. So that would mean that Satan would have to fall before Genesis 2. And for 3,500 years, nobody noticed and no biblical commentator make any point about it in the word. How could we accept something like that? It's because you've been told nursery rhymes 
and you accepted them as fact. Chronicles, Chronicles is different. He had Zechariah's work. Yeah. And he wants you to know what he now knows. Yeah. Somebody you, was behind this. Yeah. By the way, never trust any fiction or anything you read where a guy can't even spell paradise right. I mean, that's ridiculous. <laughs> now, of course, we know looking back that Satan was pulling the strings the whole time. But the people in the moment, they didn't know that. They just see the enemies of God coming to destroy. But Ezra understood that the enemy opposing Jerusalem, Israel, and the family of David has always been Satan. Ezra knew that because he was able to know the written word of God, what Zechariah wrote. Hey, there is more there than we're taking the time to get. The very first time Satan is ever rebuked in the scripture, we've covered the chronology of it now, what is he being rebuked about? The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. I I want you to understand something. The first time Satan is ever corrected in the Bible, it's about the place that God has chosen and the people God has chosen. If that doesn't fit into your theology, your theology needs to change. So now that we understand this, Chronicles being written a hundred years after Zechariah. This makes Chronicles the perfect segue into the Newer Testament where the picture becomes extraordinarily clear in the text for the first time. Come you on. guys want to get in the Newer Testament? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We're going to hand out a bunch of passages. Judah, help us with that. All righty. Mark 1, 12 through 13. Chris, you get that. Luke 4, 5 through 7. AJ, you get it. Steve Thomas, John 12, 30 through 33. Actually, just get through 32. John 13, 27, Daniel Cho. John 14, 30 through 31, Ibrahim. Marlon, John 16, 1. Timo, Revelation 12, 7 through verse 10 through 11. All right, we've got a couple more coming. First, First Corinthians 2, 8, JJ. Brandon, Colossians 1, 22. Then we'll hand out some more after that. Hey, uh, how many of you are taking notes? Yeah. yeah. Well, you're about to find out how to nail down the chronology of Satan's fall. And I want you to understand, this is not based on Milton's paradise. No. Because I was blessed to grow up a pork-eating Gentile that fought in parking lots and then got radically saved. So I did not know about Milton's paradise. And all I had to do was find out that the church at large discounted most of the book of Acts. And so I discounted most of what they said. And found this from reading the word. So saints, I want to tell you up front, we are going the simplest, easiest route through this. There are many other references on the same subject matter. But right in the opening of Mark, chapter 1, 
we have Jesus being led out into the desert and he was there for 40 days and he is being tempted by Satan. The writer of the gospel wants you to know right away that this trial period for the son of David that would redeem the entire world, that he was being incited by Satan to do wicked deeds and he had no hold on him. He stayed righteous and pure through it. We have a prosecuting attorney here that is being clearly illustrated from the opening of Mark's gospel. You want to hear something fun about it? Who led Jesus into the desert? Who tempted Jesus? So we have a dirty DA, a prosecutor, but he's not been exposed. He's still doing very much what he did in the Chronicles and Samuel account. Still doing very much what he did in the Job 1 and Job 2 account. He's examining someone. But boy, does he screw up while he's examining him. (laughs) As you see these passages, as we go down these passages, you're going to see that Satan's fall becomes more and more and more clear. Okay? What you're seeing is as the son of David is doing his work, Satan is also doing his work, and he's being trapped in the same process. He's tying his own noose, and the more and more he moves, he doesn't realize it's tied. But the further he moves, the tighter it gets until he realizes it's too late. So look at the progression as we move forward. Who's got Luke 4, verse 5 through 7? In case you weren't able to hear that, because she did a fantastic job. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me. And I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. What's interesting here is that the battle lines are being made more clear as we move forward. Now, in this passage, Luke uses the word devil in parallel with the term Satan used in Mark. Those are the same terms. Now, what's interesting is you see the pride of Satan here. Yeah. You just see his full-out, unashamed pride. Yeah. Satan is claiming to have authority over the kingdoms of the world, and he's openly soliciting worship for the first time in recorded history. He is trying to tempt Jesus with something he doesn't even have. He is claiming to have authority, but he doesn't. God has that authority. Satan does not have that authority at all, but he is pridefully trying to tempt Jesus. He is not using a proxy, but he's doing it himself. We are seeing the devil himself trying to use things that he does not have 
to tempt the son of David into doing something that he is not going to do. Now you've heard a thousand messages on how when Adam and Eve sinned, they gave the authority that they had over the world to Satan. Show me that. I'm not saying that he wasn't pulling the strings. I'm simply saying that Genesis does not say that. In fact, Deuteronomy 32 says that God apportioned the nations to other spiritual powers, but it doesn't say he apportioned them to Satan. But Satan is tipping his hand here. He's letting you know that he is the one that has been manipulating the other powers. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. You know, this is the first time in the Bible that you can actually nail that down. He's claiming that he has authority over them. Why? God gave authority to the other Elohims. Why does he have authority? Because he's been manipulating them. Does that make sense? Would y'all like to get into actually what Jesus Christ said rather than John Milton about the fall of Satan? Would that help you, son? Let's go to John 12, verse 30. John 12, verse 30. Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. When? Now. Verse 32. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. In the context of the passage, now in Jesus' ministry, and more specifically when Jesus is crucified, something is going to change with the prince of this world, the one that claims to have authority over everything. Specifically, Jesus is saying, when I am lifted up, something is going to change. I've shown up here for judgment. Not in Genesis 2. Not in Paradise Lost. Not in any other place. We don't get this picture until you get to John 12. But every time I teach this, every single time, people have such a hard time grasping it. Mm -hmm. Because you've been wrong for so long. Mm -hmm. Jesus' ministry began the judgment of Satan. And it declared that Satan would be, would be driven out. Jesus indicated the timing in correlation with his crucifixion. You can't escape that in John 12. And if you don't see it, make sure you're stripping away Milton's work of fiction. God's plan to redeem Israel and cast out the bad district attorney was coming into full focus. Matthew 25, 41 lets you in on a clue that the lake of fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. But do you know why? There are many things in the Bible that even the angels longed to look into because they didn't understand. It must have been strange for Satan. Like, what's that there for? (laughs) You're not going to Jehoram me, are you? (laughs) Don't Satan me. I'm the Satan. But apparently it wasn't understood. If it was understood... Then they wouldn't have done it. Yeah. John 13, 27, please. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What are you, what you are about to do, do quickly, Judas told him. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan, Satan him. What are you going to do, do quickly, Jesus said to him. 
saying Satan is not understanding the full picture here. We're speaking about an omniscient God that has, from the beginning, known exactly how he was going to deal with the problem on the earth. He was going to use men to do it. The problem with that is we're sinful and we kind of suck at doing his will sometimes. So he created a perfect man upon the earth. Satan enters Judas thinking that he is going to continue working behind the scenes and that he is going to cause the downfall of the Christ. The chapters of John 13, 12, 13, we're going to continue to progress, are hours and days before the actual crucifixion. So we are right up to the place where this trap that has been set, this one moment in history where everything is going to change, and Satan is still totally unaware, thinking he's going to use yet another proxy, and then the proxy is going to be the one that is punished for it, and he's going to be just fine. So Justin's going to pick up in John 14 to make sure that you're, you're getting this. Do you have a title in John 13 above your, your title? What, what do you what got? Somebody talk to me. Jesus washes his feet and washes the feet of the disciples. Did that happen in the first day of his ministry or the last day? This is the Last Supper setting. I want you to understand he announced in John 12 that the prince of the world would be driven out, that now was the time of judgment, and that it would correspond with his crucifixion. Now we are less than 24 hours before he's crucified. And Satan does something he's never done in all of human history. Before he could say to the Nahash, hey, go do this, at least we're supposing, and the Nahash got punished. He could say to the Benai Elohim, you know, those... those uh, those chicas over there, they're, uh, they're pretty cute. And they got punished for it. Never before in human history did Satan enter into someone so that now Satan is doing it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Man, it's almost like if you vote for me, I'll give you a wonderful government grant. Yeah. <laughs> vote for Pedro. So who's got John 14, 30 through 31? We hand that out. John 14, what? 30 and 31. I'll get it. Uh, I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me. But he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come on. Come now and let us leave. Now I want you to see something here. In John 12... Jesus says, now the prince of this world would be driven out. Now the prince of this world would be driven out. In John 13, Satan enters into Judas. Now we are one chapter later, and it says the prince of this world is coming. He is pointing these things to what is coming. And then he says, come now, let us leave. He is about to go into Gethsemane. Now, Jesus was completely aware of Satan's behavior, but Satan was not aware that God both knew and had a plan to expose him. That's solid. Satan did not know what was going on. We can see that because he keeps trying. He is doing this to Jesus, the Son of God. And he does not know that Jesus is well aware of his plan. In fact, you kind of get the idea that Jesus is egging it on a little bit. He says, bring it on. Yeah, what you do, go, go do quickly, buddy. (laughs) stick your hand in that mousetrap one thing that is super easy to miss I want to point out I love the father and do exactly what my father has commanded me Mm -hmm. 
He says that the world needs to learn this. Was David sinless? No. no. Definitely not. He is the only individual that can say, I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me while the prince of this world is coming for him. What has he been doing all through history? Playing the prosecuting eternity, inciting sin, creating chaos. But there is one that is going to show the world that I do exactly what the Father says. It's less of a sentimental statement and more of a, no, I am the perfect son. Ibrahim yeah, seemed to have a question. I, I, he certainly knew he was something special, but he didn't understand, and that's going to become clearer as we go. If he had understood it, he would never have done it. He got caught with his hand in the embezzlement jar, is, is what happens. In the last hours of Jesus' life, and it's important for you to understand from John 13 to John 16, where Judah is about to expand, we're talking hours, not decades, hours. John 16, 1, who has it? Uh, 1611, I'm sorry. Our, our Bible software made a typo. <laughs> Come on. In regard to judgment, because of the prince of this world, now stands condemned. Hours before the crucifixion, Jesus pronounces the judgment that is descending upon Satan, whether or not he's aware of it. In fact, he's not aware of it. That's why he's continuing down the same track. Now, Revelation is for fun here. If you look at these carefully, Jesus was describing something in the future up until John 16. Now, albeit it was hours in the future. But once Satan entered into Judas, no, it was sealed. It was done. The, the, the trap has been sprung. Once Satan has entered Judas and betrayed Christ, he strayed so far outside his prosecutorial powers, so far outside of his district attorney role, that he's now exposed and he can't back up. Yeah. He's already robbed the bank and has a gun in his hand. Now he's going to have to face walking out of the bank. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. In fact, all of the areas prior to this, what do we see entering into humans? Rephaim. The puppets of Satan. This is the first time the boss himself enters into someone to stop God's plan. He is clearly being caught here and he doesn't realize it. Let's do Revelation 12. Did we hand that out? Yes, sir. Timo, Revelation 12. We're going to go 7 through 11. And as is my custom, I'm going to interrupt you regularly. Now, stop for a second. If you were taught before you ever read this, that this happens before Genesis 2, it corrupts everything that you're going to read. Yeah. But praise God, John Milton was not around in Genesis 2. He didn't exist until 1667. So none of the original audience would have ever had that in mind at all. When they looked to the origin of Satan, they would look to the Tanakh. And then from the Tanakh, they would have the gospel writings that we have just laid out for you. They would never place this event in some primordial past. 
Jesus placed the event at the crucifixion in the last hours. If you don't like that, then we can at least narrow it down to Jesus' ministry. Three years. If you don't like that, how about the century he lived in? I don't really care where you put it in that as long as you don't make Jesus a liar. Keep going. Amen. <laughs> Aren't you glad that the writer of Revelation lets you know that the devil is the same as the ancient serpent? Because Genesis didn't tell you that. That's the progressive nature of Revelation, and it's why I can stand and preach, hey, the serpent tempting Eve, that is a satanic stratagem. Because like Ezra had the book of Zechariah, I have the book of Revelation. Keep going. Oh, wait, what was that first word? Now. 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 Like now is the time for judgment on this world. Like now the prince of the world will be driven out. Like now. Not some other time. Now. What does that tell you about the timing of Revelation 12? It's a summary of Jesus' ministry, crucifixion, and forward. Okay, keep going. Now, when you read this and you see accuses brothers, you think of Christians. Do you know what the first century audience wouldn't have thought of? Christians. They would think of the one that has been accusing people who live in Israel that were descended from Israel and a battle that took place when when Messiah was crucified. Now refers to the cross. And just as Jesus indicated in John 12, verses 30 through 33, Revelation is summarizing that event from a spiritual perspective. Satan did not fall eons ago. He fell during the ministry of Jesus. He was guilty from the beginning, but he was not exposed until the cross. This is one of the many reasons that Paul can write in 1 Corinthians 2.8. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. More importantly, for the first time in history, Colossians can say something intimately important to you. Now, no matter how you date Colossians... It's somewhere between 50 and 65, okay? But now, this is Colossians 1.22. But when? Now. But now. Somewhere between 55 and 65. But now, he has reconciled you by the physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. Without blemish, and free from accusation. Come on. 
How could you read the phrase, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death and not think crucifixion? Since the crucifixion, you have been free from accusation before the Father. Because that is when he lost his place in the heavenlies. That is when he is exposed. That is when he was made a public spectacle of before the heavenly council that we've been studying. Are you following me? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. To that same point, Luke 22 says that he's asking to sift Peter. Right before the crucifixion. Right up to the moment that we're being sentenced and dragged out to Golgotha to be crucified. He is still performing the exact same function that he had been the whole time because there was zero change up until the moment that he was trapped. You have to love our God that he is so unthreatened by this behavior that he can let it go on going, yeah, I'm going to hang you with your own feet. You know, you, you have to love that kind of security. Gabriel, did you raise your hand? You know when we're going to elaborate on that? We're going to elaborate on that on Wednesday night because we like when y'all come back. But... I want, I, I, I want to suggest to you that he was not quoting John Milton. He was not talking about sometime before Genesis 2. Something else very specific, like 70 disciples were sent to the 70 nations and they were experiencing world dominance. Amen. But uh, we'll get into that on Sunday. I mean, I did Pastor Wade will explain it to you. Speaking of world dominance, can I get her next slide? I'm glad that y'all are interested tonight. I thought maybe, I thought maybe you would find this boring. You know, you could stay home and read a, a copy of Paradise Lost. Or some other crappy work like Tim LaHaye. Saints, there's an important lesson with things like Paradise Lost. The man wrote something that was entitled as a poem. It was never put forth as literal. It was never intended to be the pretext for your theology. It wasn't Milton, as much as we're disparaging him, that created our current environment. No, it was you. It was was you. you. It was our grandfathers. It is an innate desire to accept something other than genuine study and wrestling with the Scripture. But God has called us to wrestle not just with the scripture, but with the powers that have been creating this situation the whole time. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now after reading Revelation, that is clearly Satan. That is clearly the devil, that ancient serpent. God promised that there would be a day that not only has he ceased biting our heel, but he is now under it. Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Revelation 12, he is hurled down, him and his angels, by the way. That does not mean that he's done. 
It means that he is upon the earth in his fury. And who is going to put both feet of Christ upon his head? That is you and me. That is our job. That is the war that we are currently in. God has declared it from the beginning all the way up to our time. This is the engagement that we participate in. So you have to forgive me. I'm in one of those moods tonight. I'm going to be a little facetious. I I didn't spend enough time with Miss Guinevere today, and so there's not a lot of grace and sweetness in me. Praise God. Jesus did it all at the cross. You might as well go read Paradise Lost. You've misunderstood the whole Bible story. Jesus' foot is on the head of the enemy. He put him within stepping distance for you. But the story is not over until your feet are on his neck. So saints, at some point we want to get to the rest of what is inside of Chronicles. And does it affect your viewpoint of the scripture when you understand God's plan though? Whoever said that theology has nothing to do with my personal daily practice, like all of that doesn't really matter to me. No, it absolutely does. When you understand why you were born, the calling that you have, you were made to complete the call of Jesus Christ. Is that not an empowering feeling? Realize that Marlon was made to finish Jesus Christ's work and put Satan completely underfoot. As we return to the 21st chapter of Chronicles, Take a minute to appreciate that Ezra understood this from studying Zechariah alone. He didn't have the Gospels. He didn't have Revelation. That Satan was an enemy to Israel. Ezra acted as a whistleblower in revealing the devil behind the curtain. By the way, that's her title. After Ezra's day, the understanding of the unseen enemy became clearer and clearer and clearer. This is the nature of progressive Revelation. The Jewish people, until Jesus made a public spectacle of him, had an increasing knowledge as God revealed it and made his clan here. You know what I love about Romans 16, 20? What? It is so awesome that, this, that Satan is going to be put under our feet. You know how embarrassing that must be for Satan? Here he is thinking he has a chance to stop God's plan. And then Jesus puts him underfoot. But what will it be like for Satan who fell from heaven to be put under our feet. What is man that you are mindful of him? You made him a little lower than the angels, but you crowned him with glory and honor. It is going to be a bad day for the devil when he is under our feet. I just, if you want to know exactly what it is like, there were four brothers in my hometown, each bigger than the other. And the little brother was beating me so badly that it was a big problem when the other three showed up. God has used something weaker than the angelic powers vis-a-vis a human being, Jesus Christ, filled with divinity to step on the enemy. And now he holds him down and allows you to come trample on his head. Come on. Man, this changes everything. What would happen for Christians... If we trusted the biblical text more than fictional works, come on, be challenged tonight. What would happen? How would that impact our lives if we trusted the Bible more than fictional works? Milton's Paradeep Loft is trash, but so is the whole Left Behind series. And stupid saints swallow it whole. Oh, yeah. I mean, without any question. Uh Tim LaHaye is an amazing man that I plan to share eternity with. 
His books on Christian sexuality are superb. That's his actual field. His books on eschatology suck extraordinarily. Okay? You need to throw that stuff away. Don't watch those movies. You're contaminating your mind. Let's pick up in verse 2. Linton, help us out, brother. Two through three forms. Hey, did you get did you get anything out of the first verse? Yeah. First two. Yeah, some of you are going nine o'clock. You mean Lahey yeah. wrote about sexuality? Yeah, I did. <laughs> Zondervan hired him because he's a psychologist. Yeah, let's let's move on. You better not see Tim Lahey in your notes. <laughs> you just refer him to Jennifer. <laughs> Oh, baby. <laughs> get it, get it, just go, just go. Keep going. I know it surprises you when we cover more than one verse, but we're going to do the, the first, uh, verse two and three. But God may the Lord multiply his truth a hundred times over. My Lord, the King. Are not all my Lord's subjects? Why does my Lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? Now, can you say it's a bad day when Joab is giving you good advice? I mean, Joab's got no problem grabbing somebody by the beard and stabbing them. He's got no problem. I mean, he is a figure of Judas in many, many cases. But here, he's grounded enough in the Tanakh to go, Look, David, you and I are getting old. And I had been able to outrun my sin. Would you not do this? Uh, okay. I'd like to give you all some passages on this. Is this all right? I mean, would you like to understand? Because the truth is, is what David did, I promise you are also doing. I, I promise that, that you're also doing it. Uh, this, is, this is a convicting passage. Because when I read it, I'm like, a king should know how many people are in his army. It's like... You know, loading a full clip or making sure you have enough money to go out for dinner. I mean, it makes, it makes all the sense in the world to me. Except that God's written word says something completely different. So who wants to read? I'm so glad, Brandon, that you wanted to read. Get Exodus 30, 11 through 16. No, that's it. I mean, there's hundreds more, but we're going to take them one at a time. Yeah. Then the Lord said to Moses, When you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he is counted. Oh, there are rules for a census. Like nobody told me. I, I didn't know. When you take a census, a ransom has to be paid for a life. Keep going. Then no plague will come on them when you number them. No, what? What'd you say? What? No plague. You take a census, and you do not ransom the life of every person counted, and what happens? Huh. At least God's consistent, right? Keep going. Each one who crosses over to those already counted is to give a half shekel, according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 gerahs. This half shekel is an offering to the Lord. All who cross over, those 20 years old or more, are to give an offering to the Lord. The rich are not to give more than a half shekel, and the poor are not to give less when you make the offering to the Lord to atone for your lives. You mean your atonement, whether you're rich or poor, costs the same thing? Mm. Oh, okay. Keep going. 
Receive the atonement money from the Israelites and use it for the service of the tent of meeting. That's the jet that Jesse Duplantis flies around in, isn't it? Yeah. No? Okay. Do you mean that when you take a census, there has to be a ransom for every life and every bit of the money has to be used for the Lord's purposes? You cannot buy yourself your 10th new jet like a preacher in Dallas is doing? Yeah, you can't do that. This is very, very important. And it causes a plague on God's people when you do it wrong. We don't have time to do it, so we're not going to go through the seven recorded censuses in the Bible, but I will, I will tease you with them a little bit. In Exodus 38, that's at Israel's inception, we have census number one. In Numbers 1, we have to ascertain the number of fighting men before we go into the conquest of Canaan. That is census number two. In Numbers 26, it's 38 years later, we have to reascertain the number of fighting men before we go in, and there's 1,820 left, but that's a less, but that's another sermon. Here in 1 Chronicles 21, we have our fourth census. When Solomon comes into power in 1 Kings 5 and 2 Chronicles 2, we'll get our fifth census. When they return under Ezra and Ezra 2, we get our sixth census. Does anybody know when the seventh census is? I'm glad you asked. Matthew 25 forecasts it. It's when he separates sheep from goats, those that do not have a part in the nation he has built and those that do. Wow. I pray you're counted in that number. Amen. Oh, it's me? Okay, amen. Census are important because they always have to do with atonement. This census was not intended by David to have anything to do with atonement. But what does God make it about before the chapter is over? Atonement. Because God is very consistent. Exodus 30 says the price is the same for all, rich or poor. Exodus also says you're going to get a plague if you don't do this right. Do you see how all of this lines up perfectly with 1 Chronicles 21? Whatever David's reasons were, the stratagem of Satan always backfire and through the grace of our God end up being opportunities for redemption. Don't let that be a license for immorality. The fact that God worked this out and he is completely consistent in his character is not an excuse to do it wrong. In the view of the chronicler, this is the largest sin in David's life. In the view of the chronicler, we skip over Bathsheba altogether. We skip over the murder of Uriah altogether. This, this was the sin worth mentioning in the chronicler's mind. Yeah. I wonder why. Because this had to do with the entire nation's destiny, not just his personal issue. Can I tell you? You can be forgiven for making a personal mistake, but God counts it entirely differently when you are leading people into mistakes. Amen. Yeah, teachers receive a stricter judgment. If David is susceptible yeah. to this kind of problem, how much more? Do you think that you need your brothers and the counsel of God's word to help you? Oh, yeah. 
So saints, we have Joab, who we all know has got some serious problems. But the man was right. And David did not heed the word that was given to him when he had been deceived. Think back to messages like Jarhead Covenant. The oh. reason that we live the way that we do. I'd like to put a slide on the screen. We're going to just find the reference. Yeah. Wow. The One Association Churches. Who's that? Yeah. Oaths from our articles. We, us, having tasted of the age to come, will never fail to boldly advocate for the personal and corporate manifestations of his gifts. You know why that's on there? Because occasionally each one of us can be deceived in a moment from what we know is right and what the scripture says. We are here with this together because we collectively are not going to let go of what God has given us. We, having been adopted into his holy family, not a single individual who can only hear from God by himself. We as a family will not rest until every nation in the world is represented before his throne. We will not be bribed. When you're tempted to be bribed, you're surrounding yourself by brothers who are able to speak into your life. Intimidated or seduced away from the daily implementation of the undeniable truths of the scripture. Saints, the reason that's there is because every man of God has the challenges placed before them of Rephaim, of your own sinful nature, of a devil and his angels that have been cast down to the earth and would love nothing more to see your destruction. If David himself can have this happen, I assure you, do not be deceived. You can be moved from it. That's why you need the men that are around you. Which is why we have irreducible minimums for working with people. I want. Somebody say, I want. want. And I'm asking for encouragement, correction, rebuking, training in righteousness according to the word of God from my friends and peers. Do you know why this is there? So you don't get Satan in the face. That's why. We want our brothers. Now, if you're not fully acquainted with these, and I don't just mean they're written in your Bibles, I don't just mean that you can quote them, I mean that you're living by them, then you should acquaint yourself with them. The next couple we want to hit before we move on, the sun will not set on unbiblical behavior. This sets our time frame. If David had the awareness that he is breaking God's commands and that he is feeling the conviction before the fact, he would not have done it. The reason we have that is because you often will not know that you are about to bring judgment upon you in your own household. The sun does not set when your brother brings you a word out of the scripture that says what you're doing is sin without you fixing it. One of the reasons that this may be Joab in the scripture is because anytime somebody is correcting you, you view them like Joab. (laughs) Which is why we have number three. I have proven to my brothers and my brothers have proven to me that we have each other's best interest in mind. Saints, that has to be the way that we look at each other. Otherwise, we're inviting Satan to cause division and isolate you so that you end up dying. These are here to guard us. If the Davidic son is susceptible to this, I guarantee you, you are. We need each other, and we are strong together because Christ is able to use us as priests of God in our own household, if not the world, of course, with us. That is where we move on to counsel the rest of the world and turn them towards Christ. Justin, will you help us out with Ecclesiastes? Yeah, I want to read to you a scripture that we all need to get down inside of our souls. This is Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 14. 
It says two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. Now, this is not talking about a man and a wife being two. Right. In God's math, when you have a man and a wife, you have one. Right. So you don't just say, well, I've got a second, that's my wife, and we help. No, this is talking about two brothers, two sisters working together. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Better, listen to this, verse 13. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to take oh warning. What are we talking about here? Who wrote it? His son. <laughs> Joab is giving a warning to King David. Now, I know what you're all thinking. It's very easy to discredit Joab when he's giving you a warning. I mean, after all, <laughs> look at all the things he's done wrong. Look at all the areas that he's got wrong. Who does he think he is to talk to me? It does not matter who it is giving correction in your life. If someone is giving you correction, you take heed to the correction. You listen to the correction because if you do not, God will not correct you again. If you prove that you can't take correction, God will stop correcting you. And that is how you fall down. Now, in this passage, you got something? I was curious if you guys thought it was possible that because it was Joab that gave him the warning, caused David to dig his feet in. Oh, I'm sure it did. And I I bet Balaam didn't particularly appreciate his own ass opening up and speaking to him and telling him he was wrong. We never liked the messenger, but that's got nothing to do with the quality of the message. See, people don't like that I have a beard. They don't like that I drive a truck or that I carry a gun or that I'm married to an extraordinarily beautiful grandma. I get it. That has nothing to do with the quality of the message. They would rather that I look more like Joel Osteen. But I say look at the quality of the message. Now the truth is the Lord loves David. And this ends out, this ends up working out. And it ends up being a beautiful picture as we move on. And we will focus on that for the rest of the night. But it should never be understood to be an acceptance of this kind of behavior. Are y'all interested? Yeah. yeah. Let's hop back into the text. We, uh, yeah, it's surprisingly, it took more time to cover the fall of Satan after giving you the origin of demons and a better picture and understanding of spiritual geography. But um, we are going to do the chapter. Amen. Let's go to verse 4. The king's words, however, overruled Joab. So Joab left and went throughout Israel and then came back to Jerusalem. Joab reported the number of fighting men to David. In all Israel, there were one million. 100,000 men who could handle a sword, including 470,000 in Judah. Wow. But Joab did not include Levi and Benjamin in the number because the king's command was repulsive to him. Mm. This command was also evil in the sight of God, so he punished Israel. So we're going to put a slide on the screen mostly because it does not appear in my notes. Do you all recognize this from Sunday? Yes. I wish we had the kind of time to go over 
the message about the hidden remnant of Benjamin and Levi. Because that would really open up things for you in your eschatology. Since I can't do it, I'm going to hint at a couple things. And uh, I want to start with, it was not by accident that God outlined his declaration of war first for the human race, then for the nation of Israel, then for the tribe of Judah, then for the family of David. That's not an accident. If we go to the next slide, I'll show you a little bit of how that works out. Jesus, is he a human? Yes. Is he of Israel? Yes. Is he of the tribe of Judah? Yes. Is he of the family of David? Yes. Guess what he's going to war for? First and foremost, the family of David. Secondly, the tribe of Judah. Thirdly, the nation. And then the human race. Salvation first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. If you skip steps here, your theology will end up in bad places. If you skip these steps, you will not understand what you're reading. The order of the promises are important. And Jesus starts somewhere so that he can finish somewhere. If I had time to tell you about Benjamin being the last to be seated at Joseph's table, if I had time to tell you about that he gets a greater portion, if I had time to tell you that Benjamin means son of my happiness, if I had time to tell you that when the end-time remnant of Benjamin comes in, we will have global salvation happening, that if I had time to tell you that Benjamin was included inside of the territory of Judah, we could really do some stuff, but I do not have that kind of time. So we're going to go to verse 8. Amen. Then David said to God, I have sinned greatly by doing this. Now I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. All right, saints. You remember what the census was supposed to be about? We have somebody paying a ransom and atonement was always associated with it. I'm going to read to you Isaiah 59, 20 and 21. The Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. There's a unique marker about David throughout his life. The repentance is something that always characterizes him. Whether he's doing well in the moment or not, The man knows how to repent and change his behavior. Isaiah says that the Redeemer will come to those of Zion when they repent. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you and my words that I put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth or from the mouths of your children's children or from the mouths of their descendants from this time on and forever. David's repentance is beautiful. It's sincere. It's complete. And we're going to see how it continues to build in the coming verses. This kind of repentance always brings the most vivid pictures of redemption, i.e. the rest of the story that we're about to read. Are any of you familiar with the Stevens family banner? Because it's where all of the family banner teachings came from. The Lord spoke to me about Isaiah 59 while in India. And I was moved in my heart and I wrote my son's name, Judah, who was wayward next to this verse. At that time... Judah was not sure that he was going to follow a godly path. I think he wanted to be Donald Trump or a physical therapist or something. Okay? It can be true for you, everything in the Word. But it will never be true for you without being true to its original audience. The original audience, the children's children's children, are of the house of Jacob. He will not save the Gentile world 
without saving the house of Jacob. Verse 9, brother. The Lord said to Gad, David's here. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. Now there's something interesting here to glean from. God is asking David, choose one of these punishments for me to carry out against you. God is going to carry out this punishment himself. Now we, we quoted earlier that Ezra chronicles this sin as the worst thing David ever did. Ezra did not mention what happened with Bathsheba. What happened with Bathsheba? Well, there was a, an adultery. There was a murder there. And then Nathan says to him things about David's household. What those things are, though, are consequences that happen after David sinned. All right. After David sinned, it triggered a series of events in his family that would play out over time and would be consequences that he was facing. There is something completely different about this verse. There is something completely here because God is saying, I will carry out this against you personally. Man, which is easier to deal with, consequences or God punishing you himself? It's not just the fruit of your bad choices. It is divine direct judgment immediately. Those are really different things. If, if you, <laughs> I mean, the difference is making a bad choice in a marriage and having to live with those consequences that are going to come from it versus being struck dead on the spot. Now, this is very interesting because we're going to see something here about the Messiah. All right. This is the wrath of God being displayed against David's sin. I want to read to you something in 1 Samuel 2, 24 through 25. It says, no, my sons, it is not a good report that I hear spreading among the Lord's people. If a man sins against another man, God may mediate for him. All right. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? See, it's one thing to sin against another man. If you sin against God, you're in big trouble. His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. Sinning against the Lord will require the Lord to intercede for you. All right? If you sin against God, you're going to have to have him intercede, and that requires his mercy. You're going to have to beg for him to intercede. Second Corinthians. Uh, Daniel, read this. 2 Corinthians 5.21. You can read it from the screen if you want. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is such an interesting concept. Now we're throwing a lot at you quickly and we're entering into a stage where we'll probably start preaching so that we meet our time requirements. 2 Corinthians 5.21 literally has Jesus becoming sin for a group of people. That was first for Israel and then for us. Jesus is of the family of David. And he makes atonement for the family of David. Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. And he makes atonement for the tribe of Judah. Jesus is of the nation of Israel and makes atonement for the nation of Israel. Jesus is of the human race. And he makes atonement for the human race. You ready for the best one? Jesus is God, and he makes intercession on behalf of sins done against God. 
When two men sin, God can intervene for them. But when a man sins against God, who can make intercession for him? This is why Paul presents to Timothy that Jesus is the mediator between God and man because he is both and he can handle both. Amen. Let's pick up in verse 11. That's better than you know that it is, but think about it and it'll bless you later tonight. Get 11 and 12 for me. So God went to David and said to him, this is what the Lord says. Take your choice. Three years of famine, three months of being swept away before your enemies, with the swords overtaking you for three days of the sword of the Lord. Pause real quick. You Bible scholars. Three, 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 three. Does that communicate a message to you? Yes. We don't have time to go through that string again, but it ought to. Keep reading, Linton. David was plagued in the land with the anger of the Lord ravaging every part of Israel. Now then, decide, decide how I should answer the one who sent you. Saints, there's a lot of analogies and sayings in English when you have... Several undesirable choices. But each of these have a consequence that are laid up. The biblical term for plague is a little different than what we think about. When you say plague, we think black death. We think pestilence. A plague that is a pestilence can be angels destroying you. It can be your enemies destroying you. What it is communicating is a mass judgment that is not affecting just one man. A plague always affects the whole community. The penalty for a census done improperly is a plague, according to Exodus 30. And we're seeing the results of that. David chooses according to the written word of God. Saints, when you hear these, does your mind want to gravitate towards which one you would choose? The Lord is the one who holds the power of life and death, according to Deuteronomy 32 and verse 39. David chose according to the written word of God. In Deuteronomy 32, 39, So, now that I myself am he, there is no God beside me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will... What's it say? He realizes the character of his father that is spoken about in the Torah, that he is the one who kills, who saves, and that he also will heal wounds that he inflicted. The distance between life and death is always three in the Bible. David is given a difficult choice but he chooses according to the written word of God. Hosea 6, 1 through 3 would indicate that God would restore Israel after three days. David didn't have the scripture, but he knew the heart of God from the Torah and threw himself at the mercy of God displayed in his written word. What a lesson for us. David's choice was to be in the hands of God and the one that he knew would heal and the kind of God that would desolate, but also restore his people. Let's pick up in verse 14 and read through 15. 13. 13. I'm sorry, 13 to 15. David said to God, I am in deep distress. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into the hands of men. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell dead. How many? 70,000. And God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem. But as the angel was doing so, the Lord saw it. And was grieved because of the calamity, and said to the angel who was destroying the people, "Enough! Withdraw your hand." The angel of the Lord was then standing at the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Now I think you're starting to see this now, but seventy thousand is not random. We've been learning about seventy in the Word. Seventy thousand or seventy 
is a probably a reference chosen to evoke the imagery of the sins of the world. Now think of 70 in the Bible. There are 70 nations in Genesis 10. There are 70 bulls for Sukkot and Numbers 20, Numbers 29, one for each nation. There are 70 burning branches of the menorah in the temple in 1 Kings 7, one for each nation. 70 disciples sent into the world with a message of redemption in Luke 10. 70,000 here died. You starting to see a big picture here? It's showing that there is a plague on Israel, yes, but there is also a plague on all the nations around. Yeah. And what David is doing here, you see, Jesus took sin upon himself so that his family would be clean and the nations would be free from sin. David is about to own up to the sin so that his family would be free and that the nations would start the process of freedom. Who got saved first, though? Israel. Yeah. <laughs> and then it rolls out to the nation. So let's pick up in verse 16. David looked up and saw the hand of the Lord standing between heaven and earth, with a drawn sword in his, in his hand extended over Jerusalem. Then David, David and the others, both in sackcloth, fell face down. Wow. This, this phrase struck me today. And again, I wish we had another few hours to go through it. But we have David, the king of Israel, surrounded by elders. And they're covered in sackcloth. Uh, if, if, if I looked up and saw the angel of the Lord with a sword in his hand hanging between heaven and the earth, I'd need new trousers. I couldn't help but immediately fast forward in my mind. Revelation 4.4 has the Davidic son surrounded by elders and they're dressed in white and wearing gold crowns. One is an image of Israel beneath sin and the other is an image of Israel having conquered sin. Revelation 5 explains why. Because there was one who looked like a son of man, who was a lamb that was slain, and he has triumphed. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. David is walking through imagery that Jesus will absolutely fulfill. But I doubt that he knew that. Let's pick up in verse 17. David said to God, Was it not I who ordered the fight against the Davidic heart here is one that is the heart of Messiah. There are very few passages in the Bible like this, and we're going to cover them, where you see a man look at sin, destruction, and death that are on people and he says let it be on me and my house see there are a lot of people that would die for their own children there are very few people who would die for a nation or the nations he is not only saying let the physical penalty fall on me he's saying let the full weight of your judgment rest upon my shoulders we're going to hand out just a couple scriptures because they're worth reading and we're going to work through these quickly nick would you get exodus 32 32 nick Aragina? Romans 9, 3. Who wants that one? Cody. John 10, 11. Ibrahim. Ezekiel 34, 23 through 24. Nolan, you get that one. I'm going to read those and work through this for a moment. A messianic heart that is portrayed by David as a good shepherd. One that would never let somebody else be the fall guy for his problem. Hey, who did we start this study with that did let people 
be a fall guy for things that he did? Wow. Now we really see a contrast between two spiritual beings, except we're reading about an actual man here, David. Come on, Exodus 32, 32. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then block me out of the book you have written. All right, so we have the satanic entity that is inciting men to sin against God, that is working against his plan. And we have the people rebelling and wickedness. But what did God do? He appointed a single man with a messianic heart that would rather himself be blotted out of the book of life than see God's purpose, his plan, and his people fail. And yet somehow we think that those people are now irrelevant. Romans 9.3 For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race. Well, it's a really good thing that now that Jesus was crucified for the human race, Israel's not important. (laughs) the guy who wrote two-thirds of the new testament had the same heart that moses had the same heart that david had the same heart that jesus has he could wish that he would be cut off rather than see his nation not saved do you know why these men display that heart it's god's heart what's john 10 11 Man, Jesus had this same heart too. And who are Jesus' sheep first and foremost? Israel. David is saying in Chronicles 21, he's saying, look, they are sheep, but I am the shepherd. Let the punishment fall on me, not the sheep. Let the punishment fall on me, not the nation of Israel. What is that? Ezekiel. Ezekiel 34, 23 through 24. I will place over them one shepherd. My servant David. Whoa. Ezekiel. When, when is this written? Long after the time of David. And we're speaking about later. a shepherd that would come. My servant David. And he will tend to them. Keep going. He will tend them and be their shepherd. Woo. I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. And I, the Lord, have come spoken. On. Saints, just like in the opening of Luke, the Davidic son is introduced by his father and the throne that he would inherit. The definition of the good shepherd is David. When the prophets are speaking about the kind of savior that we will have, that would come, that we have been able to participate in, it was one like David who was ready to lay down his life for the people that God had entrusted to him. It's a better question this evening is, do you represent a messianic heart? Are you here just for your own salvation? Are you here for you and your own family? Or have you taken on the heart of Christ that wants to die for his sons and daughters? First and foremost, Israel. Then the other nations that are around. See, this is a shining example. But we want to imitate that son of David, don't we? Verse 18 and 19, let's have... Wow. We're moving at a frightening pace now, and uh, I'm still stuck on something. God would be their God, and David would be their shepherd, right? Y'all, y'all got that in Ezekiel 34? Uh, I'm sorry to throw you a loop, sound booth, but could you put Ezekiel 34, 31 on the screen?
Uh, Ezekiel 34, 31? It's worth the wait, I promise. This is the Lord speaking. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture. And I am, what's that say? Declares the sovereign Lord. If they are the sheep and he is the shepherd, what does that mean when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd? He is both of David and of God. I didn't want to just fly over that. A careful examination of Ezekiel 34 will show you that the Messiah was hinted at being divine. God says several times in the passage, I will shepherd my sheep. And then he says he'll put David over it. And then he identifies the sheep and the shepherd. Look, what we're kind of moving towards as we get towards the end of this chapter is we see that the angel of the Lord has appeared in verses 18 and 19. I don't want you to think that because you see a temporary judgment on Israel that somehow or another God is against Israel. Remember, the angel of the Lord spoke to Abraham about providing redemption for Israel in Genesis 22. The angel of the Lord spoke to Moses about redeeming the people of Israel in Exodus 3. Throughout the book of Judges, the angel of the Lord shows up and speaks to a man about saving his people again and again. See Judges 6. God doesn't abandon his declaration of war. He does not abandon his plan. In this moment, if you were living in this day, watching 70,000 die, you'd go, ah, well, I guess Israel screwed up and God must be concerned with somebody else. Of course, if you go another few days, you'll find out, no, they go on to build the temple of God on earth. Amen. God didn't abandon them. He is not set back by Satan's stratagem. Don't be confused by theologians that just lose focus at some point. They may have us pointing towards the right goal in the end, salvation for everybody, but it does not come about without salvation first for Israel, for the tribe of Judah, for the family of David. We all get this together. We are co-heirs with them. We are not co-heirs without them. It's not just that the angel of the Lord says this. The site that he says it on is a messianic site. The site of David's greatest sin in his census is the site that typifies man's greatest redemption. Isn't that exactly like the crucifixion of Jesus? It is our greatest failure as the human race. And yet it is also our greatest redemption. I would point you to 1 Peter 2.23 to understand that. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you who were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Come on. Do you think maybe Peter understood Ezekiel 34? Do you think maybe he understood the heart of David and the heart of God to shepherd wayward sheep and he made a promise to save them? And friends, he'll keep his promise to them, which means that there's a promise for you as well. Let's pick up in verse 20. There are some very good things to get to and we're right at the two hour mark. Do you all have 10 more minutes for us? Read verse 22. While a was threshing wheat, he turned and saw the angel. His four sons who were with him hid themselves. 
Then David approached, and when Aruna looked and saw him, he left the threshing floor and bowed down before David with his face to the ground. David said to him, Let me have the sight of your threshing floor so I can build an altar to the Lord, that the plague on the people may be stopped. Sell it to me at the full price. So in this story, we've already seen the messianic heart employed by David, the messianic sight that David is working in, and now we're seeing the messianic method. David says, sell it to me at full price. Yeah. Now this reminds us of Genesis 23, 1 through 15. This is the story in Abraham's greatest pain. His wife has died. He is going to buy a plot of land where the resurrection will take place for Abraham and all of his family. Now, when he buys that plot of land, they call Abraham something that's special here. And that's Elohim Nasi. That means God's prince. When they see Abraham paying full price, the Hittites call him God's prince. Now here, Abraham is paying full price. He is God's prince. David is paying full price. He is God's prince. And in the very same place, Jesus will pay full price. And he is called God's prince. God's prince amongst normal men. That is a full price mentality. How about you? Let's pick up in 23 and 24. Aruna said to David, Take it. Let my lord the king do whatever pleases him. Look, I will give the oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing sledges for the wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I will give all this. But King David replied to Aruna, No, I insist on paying the full price. I will not take for the lord what is yours, or sacrifice a burnt offering that cost me nothing. Saints, before we move to verse 25, we just want to make the Peshat out loud claim. Redemption's never cheap. Anytime you're offered a solution, you're offered a cheaper route, you can almost be certain that every single time you're staring at a counterfeit gospel that's often referred to in the Bible as a prostitute, a pseudo, something other than the real thing. Because to have the real thing will always cost you something just like Jesus Christ. Yeah. Right. Let's get verse 25 for us. So David paid Aruna 600 shekels of gold for the site. <laughs> Any of you remember the Samuel account? This is slightly different. Look, there are various explanations about this. They relate to, in Samuel, we're buying just the threshing floor itself, which is not a large enough area for a temple. And in Chronicles, we are buying the entire site and surrounding area that would house the entirety of the temple. But it is worth noting that many Jewish sages teach that David paid in silver, Acts class students, what does that represent? And then all of the tribes, so we have 12 tribes, all paid 50 pieces of gold apiece so that every member of Israel had a piece in the founding of the temple. Now, Chase that down in your own time. It's a beautiful picture, but a high price is paid because it was worth it. We want you to know that the gospel is worth it in your life, and it should show up in the kind of sacrifice that you put forward to it. Linton, will you pick up in verse 26 for us? David built an altar to the Lord, and there is sacrifice, burnt offerings, and fellowship offerings. He called on the Lord, and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven <laughs> the altar of burnt offerings. Come on. Look, I, I love, I love when you can tell that something has been received by God. <laughs> Fire from heaven. Was David's repentance received? Well, yeah, it was received. How do we know that? Because in Leviticus 9, 24, when they built an altar for this purpose, 
Fire came from heaven and lit it. David's repentance received the same kind of heavenly fire. Of course, in 2 Chronicles 7.1, when they built the temple, fire from heaven came and, built and lit the altar as well. In fact, this is a pattern in the Bible. Many of you will remember the story from Sunday school that Elijah repaired the altar of the Lord. He wanted the repentance of the nation of Israel, even though they were off in terrible idolatry. And do you know what happened? Fire came from heaven and lit that altar because this is what God wants. I, I racked my brain. I, where else in the Bible does fire come from heaven for the <laughs> repentance of the nation of Israel? It was very difficult to find because I was reading a cessationist Bible in Acts chapter 2 was not in it. <laughs> fire fell from heaven in Jerusalem because he wants the repentance of his people. Amen. The Spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit, is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And he wants the family of David. He wants the tribe of Judah. He wants the nation of Israel. And he wants the whole world. But we need to make sure that we don't jump to the end of the war without going through all of its stages. Yeah? Let's do verse 27. Man, the angel had a sword, and he was using it. In Deuteronomy 32, it talks about when Israel sins, God would pull out the sword of his wrath against his people. Now, this is beautiful. When David repents, when David sacrifices, when David pays full price, the wrath of God is subsided. Amen. When that sword is sheathed. That reminds us of 1 Thessalonians 1.10. And to wait for his son from heaven. Who? God's son, the Davidic son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Wait, like, when does he rescue him? When he comes from heaven. Yeah, you don't get it? <laughs> Being disappointed that the family of David, that the tribe of Judah, and the nation of Israel is not yet saved, is to fundamentally misunderstand the Bible story. They are saved at his coming and then the rest of the world with them. Come on. It says it all over the Bible. I'm happy the sword was sheathed, though. Amen. Yeah, you? Yeah. And I'm not saying that we, like Naaman, can't carry around some pseudo-Israeli dirt and be experiencing it now. Certainly we are. In that sense, we're all the same. In a global sense, though, it is not the same. There are stages to this battle, and the Bible forecasts it again and again and again. The whole 11th chapter of Romans is dedicated to it. Justin, would you pick us up in verse 28? At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the virgin floor of the ruin of the Jebusite, he offered sacrifices there. The tabernacle of the Lord which Moses had made in the desert, and the altar of burnt offerings were at that time on the high place at Gideon. Now, if we had unlimited time, I would talk to you about the dualistic sites. I would tell you that God was very much meeting with people in the tabernacle of Moses, very much meeting with people at David's tent that is not yet fallen at this time, and he would meet with people at the temple. But what you're going to find out in the days to come is those things consolidate. 
we're in a time period, according to the apostles, right now, of transition, and they are not yet consolidated. Verse 30, Linton. But David could not go before and inquire of God because he was afraid of the sword of the anger of the Lord. Saints, I want to tell you tonight that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That fear would keep a man from sinning against God. That it is there for a very specific purpose. And that your fear is something that should be overshadowed and increase as your love grows for the Lord. 1 John 4 speaks about this concept. More pertinently in David's life, he goes on to lay out what is necessary to see the temple of God on earth founded. He doesn't stay far from the God when he had something that was difficult, that required sacrifice, that was redeeming from sin. He actually girds up his courage in the coming chapters and he brings the heavens to the earth. The earthly representation of God and man meeting. He doesn't stay where he's at. He's just reminded of the kind of fear of the Lord that keeps a man from sin. Saints, we need a healthy fear of the Lord. It keeps you from sin. But as we are walking in a righteous path, doing his will, your love for him should also increase to the point where it shows up on the earth and you're building the kingdom of God in the lives that are around you. This is our high call. This is what we get to participate in in following the son of David. Tonight we want to close on the beauty of 1 Chronicles 21. We started talking about the stratagems of Satan. Man, so many of us are familiar to that, aren't we? When you're going through it, it is very difficult. But when you look back, you can see how Satan has tried to veer you off course. You can see things that he puts in your way to try to get you to go anywhere else other than where you're supposed to. Tonight, we want to recognize and look at 1 Chronicles 21 as a whole. There are Satan's strategies to try to veer the people off course, to try to veer David off course, to try to veer Israel and the nations off course. But God works all these things out for the good of his people. He uses, God uses this circumstance to set up the most beautiful picture of redemption that we can have in the Older Testament. He did the same thing with Jesus. When Jesus was being crucified, it looked like everything was going wrong. It looked like Satan was winning until he rose again. You see, God has a plan and he knows the end from the beginning. God is sovereign in Satan's strategies. Yes. He knows what is happening, and he is using those things to further your promises, your callings, and the things that you will do for the kingdom of God. We can see that so plain when we take a holistic view of the word of God. We should be encouraged tonight to know that when you are facing a strategy of Satan, it doesn't surprise God one bit. In fact, maybe... God allowed this to happen. Maybe God allowed Satan to do this in your life because he knew you would be able to handle it. And he knew that you walking through it and you having the perseverance and you having the faith would reveal his glory to everyone around you. That is what we need to be comforted with tonight. God is in control. Don't lose heart and don't be discouraged one bit. Would you like to worship the King of Kings? Our very first song tonight. We don't often do worship at these meetings. Actually features the phrase that what the enemy meant to hurt us, you've worked for good. I couldn't think of anything more fitting out of 1 Chronicles 21 than that. Out of David's sin, out of 70,000 deaths, 
we get the sight of Israel's redemption and then global redemption. I thought that was worth worshiping God for his brilliance over.